Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today we welcome to the SASPOD a Stanford alum, Hari Sish Asai. He has an MA in Latin American Studies from Stanford University and works as trade advisor at ProColombia, the Colombian government's official trade and investment promotion agency. He is also a Latin American analyst specializing in India-Latin America relations. He previously worked as a senior researcher with Gateway House, a Mumbai-based foreign policy think tank. And he also led the Latin America desk at the Confederation of Indian Industry, India's largest business association. Hari, you must be very busy. Thank you for joining me on the SASPOT today. How are you? Oh, thank you very much. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I'm very glad to be speaking with you. So thanks for inviting me, Dalita. Yeah, of course, of course. Great to have you. Now, I just want to clarify to the audience, we're recording on May 21st. Uh, we'll likely release the, po the podcast in about a week. Uh, so uh, just to give a sense of the timeline. Um, Harry, I want to start by asking you, how are things on the ground in Mumbai in terms of COVID? Um, I think it's a, it's a lot better now. Um, now in Mumbai and in the state of Maharashtra, where I am, uh, because Mumbai went into, uh, or rather Maharashtra went into a quarantine, um, sort of partial lockdown from the beginning of April. So cases have already, um, I think the positivity uh, rate has gone below 5% now oh, okay. in Mumbai. Yeah, in Mumbai specifically, I don't know about the rest of Maharashtra, but, uh, you know, given that Mumbai has such a big population, and the fact that it's been almost two months now with the with this lockdown, I think things have gotten a lot better. Um, the the municipal corporation, the BMC, yeah. um, has done quite well. They have delegated as or rather decentralized absolutely everything. So the city is split into uh, what we call wards. Yeah. I think there are 24 wards mm -hmm. and they have um, you know, very specific, what they call war rooms for each of these wards. Mm -hmm. And in each of those wards, they have a, a particular number of doctors, um, people who respond over uh, phone calls. So everything is decentralized and uh, managed by people from, let's say, the lowest denomination in terms of governance. So that has really helped control the spread of COVID here, uh, specifically in Mumbai. But, you know, the rest of the country is nothing uh, like this. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I read that almost half, or maybe now even more than half, of all cases in India are now in the rural areas, uh, which really is quite dangerous because you know, the amount of 
healthcare capacity that exists in the rural areas is really small. Yeah. Um, in many villages and towns, you don't even have a hospital. They have to walk to uh, some place that's at least a few kilometers away just to get there. Yeah. So I think that that is making it uh, difficult for everyone in the country um, to deal with this. And I think just two days ago, India crossed 4,500 deaths Mm. Uh, because of COVID in one day, which is the most that any country has recorded since the beginning of this uh, pandemic. Mm. And even these numbers you know, are not entirely accurate um, because we have seen that um, even, let's say, uh, crematoriums across the country have reported as much as uh, 20 times the number of official cases. Right. And these uh, numbers that they report are of, let's say, cremations done with, within COVID protocols. So not just uh, right. cremations, but um, so, you know, we don't really know exactly what the impact is, especially now that it's in the rural areas. Uh, but hopefully, if the government does focus a lot more on vaccinations, things do get better um, in, in the long run. Yeah, I talked to Dr. Mahadevan in uh, last week's podcast about um, vaccinations, and we talked a little bit about, about the ethics of uh, lower risk people in um, mm -hmm. in the United States, primarily, um, such as my 14 year old son getting the vaccine and, and so much right. of the world not having any access. And so what is that like in India? Do some people have access to the vaccine and, and, and presumably the vast majority does not? So. Uh, you know, there is one really glaring sort of gaping hole in these vaccinations that very few people have uh, pointed out. I read in an article in the Indian Express that showed that by the end of April, out of about 140 million vaccinations that had taken place at that time, mm -hmm. by the end of April, only 17% have been through what is called the CoWin database. So the CoWin, um, it, it's basically a website through which you can register for the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So only 17% of all the vaccinations that had taken place were through this online portal. The rest were through walk-ins, like people just going uh, to these centers to get vaccinated. Yeah. And it has been really difficult over the past month or two uh, because there are practically no walk-ins now. So you cannot, walk-ins are not even allowed, except for, let's say, people who are uh, over 60 and who have got the first shot, they can do walk-ins only for the second shot. Um, so for a huge chunk of the population, there's this sort of digital divide and right, right. they have no choice but to just wait it out right? Uh, because they don't have access to it right now. Right. What has been uh, the impact of the pandemic on your working life? Presumably no travel. I mean, we'll talk more about, of course, about all your uh, various uh, occupations, but, but yeah, how has it been? Um, uh, to be frank, Lalita, I have been uh, in a position of privilege to be able to work from home. Um, and I have actually been working from home for the past four years from 2017. Um, and 
That was quite a visionary decision then, as it turned out. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife and I both decided around 2017 that we want to have a better sort of work-life balance. But we are really fortunate to be in this position where we can uh, not only find those kind of opportunities, but, uh, you know, we were not laid off and uh, we continued to work throughout this pandemic. And that is not the case for the majority of people in the country who have lost their jobs, who... Um, not, not only people who work in the uh, formal sector, but specifically people who work in the informal sector, which is the majority of uh, India's workforce, um, they have no, no other choice because everything is closed. And mm -hmm. for a very short period, uh, let's say from about October, November last year, till uh, maybe Feb this year, uh, things did reopen. Um, a few shops also reopened. But if you look at uh, the situation now, even in Mumbai, in uh, Chennai, where, which is in Tamil Nadu in the south where my parents stay, um, even the, uh, the corner shops, you know, where you just get provisions, um, are closed for most of the day. They can open only till, in Mumbai, I think it's about 11 a.m. Mm -hmm. And even then, not every day, on alternate days. Mm -hmm. And in Chennai also, it's something similar. So there are various restrictions, even for the most basic uh, goods, you know, these are uh, provisions that everyone needs. Right. So I'm not even talking about people who are working in uh, uh, the automobile sector, textiles, handicrafts, um, so many other things that are just closed right now. Yeah. So I've had, uh, I've been quite lucky to uh, you know, not fall under that, but for a large majority of Indians, this is the case. And it will likely continue to be the case at least uh, for another few months. You know? Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it does. It does seem like the end is unfortunately not yet in sight. Um, That's right. Thank you for kind of uh, showing us a little bit more about life on the ground in India. Now, I'd like to go back in time a little. What inspired you to study Latin America and was working in trade um, the kind of driving force behind that? Um, so this is actually quite an easy question for me because uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I worked in a youth organization called ISEC um, when I was in college, uh, when I was in university uh, from 2005 to 2008. Mm -hmm. And I basically and worked this? with, a, uh, so this was in Mumbai and okay. I basically worked with um, a lot of companies, NGOs to do um, to facilitate international internships between different countries. So we would get people from all over the world to come and work in India with NGOs, with uh, companies here, and also send people from India to do educational, developmental, and management technical projects as well abroad. Um, so at the end of that, I ended up going to Peru in 2008. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just a part of my trajectory there uh, with ISEC. And I spent two years in Peru and that was enough for me to realize that I want, I want to focus on this region, work on this region for as, as long as I can, because I really uh, sort of fell in love with the people there, the culture, the music, the food. Um, and there, there was not too much about Latin America that was going on in India. So very few companies that uh, focused on the region in academia hardly any research uh, done about latin america in india 
so right now i've been working uh, you know more on trade but before this i was doing um, research for about 3 4 years with think tank in india and then um, also with the confederation of uh, indian industry but even now i want to do a lot more research because that is what interests me and i've been able to do some research with the wilson center where i'm a, a non resident fellow so uh, i i think i will continue uh, being engaged with the latin american region for a long time and uh, of course being able to speak the language uh, speak spanish at least fluently and uh, um, have so many friends and like a personal connection right. uh, really helped yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. That's I guess that's how I feel about India. Now, I'm um, I'm curious. So you went to Peru and spent two years there. Um, I mean, no country is representative of the whole region. But I what I know about Peru, which is not very much, it's uh, it's it, it's it's culturally quite different from some of the other countries in uh, South America. It reminds me the first time I ever went to India was in Kerala. and then the second uh-huh. time i went to india i landed in delhi and i'm like what happens <laughs> and i yes. completely fell in love with north india so it all worked out in the end but there was a real sense of hang on <laughs> yeah. what was that like for you when you went somewhere else in in south america um so i think there is a certain level of uh, uh similarity between different countries in latin america like specifically language so apart from brazil where uh, they speak portuguese right. um, practically in the rest of latin america everyone speaks spanish right um and one of the reasons i even decided to go to peru is because i wanted to learn spanish and i wanted to learn spanish so i can speak to a good amount of people in their native language mm-hmm. and you have a different sort of connection um when you can speak in someone's native language you know so uh so in that sense even now when i speak to anyone from colombia from argentina from mexico um it's very easy to connect because of the language right. uh, but yeah there are there are quite a few differences when you look at it from uh, a social political aspect uh, where there are really stark differences from one country to another right and even now the way uh, different countries have handled the pandemic has been um actually you know the whole region has been affected disproportionately higher than most other parts of the world um latin america has a much higher percentage of covid cases and deaths if you compare it with the uh, with their relative population of the world and the number of cases that they have um but yeah i think i think there are certain things still that bind some of these countries together yeah. of course yes um i want to ask you about your work um with pro colombia can you say a little bit more about it so uh, pro colombia is the trade promotion agency trade and investment promotion agency of the government and their mandate is basically to uh diversify what is called non traditional or non um how do you say in spanish it's minero energetico mm-hmm. so which is uh, minerals and uh, uh, energy let's say oil yeah. um, so to diversify away from these uh, so called 
commodities or primary products mm -hmm. and the uh, underlying cause for this is because pro colombia um or rather colombia right now still gets a big part of its uh, revenue and exports from the mineral and oil sectors yeah um so in the long run it's imperative for the country to expand and diversify and also colombia so far has only about 15 to 20 years left uh, maybe even less than that uh, of oil reserves wow. and it's up to about 30% of the economy is dependent on on these sectors right. and since it's so limited you know they need something to to um, have as a backup so my role at pro colombia is to look at how um, colombia can work with countries like india i also handle a few countries in the middle east mm -hmm. um to diversify colombia's exports so to export more agricultural products um even things like manufactured goods machinery uh -huh. uh, fashion products so things that do add value to the industries in colombia that uh, employ a lot of people and that um, could necessarily be more important in the future got it that sounds uh, super interesting uh, and i'm uh, i'm i'm glad that's working out do you feel the way colombia and india are portrayed um of course both very much in the news right now do you feel the way they're portrayed in the foreign media is accurate um or are they always seen through a colonial or a western centric lens um that is a difficult question uh, well, you had the easy of, question earlier so you know that. <laughs> yeah that's right but that's difficult because of the fact that there is so much of a plurality of voices within both of these countries and also if you expand colombia's point of view to latin america's point of view and this is actually something that um, i was thinking of doing immediately after graduating uh, from stanford um about 6 uh, 7 years ago which is i wanted to create a sort of publication mm -hmm. that tells stories of uh, latin america mm -hmm. in english from a sort of a local perspective because that doesn't really exist right now so i'm sure even what you would be reading of latin america if it's in english um it will be from a sort of uh, western colonial lens Correct. you know yes and the topics will not be very different from one year to the next right they will be very similar and uh, uh in fact let's say even for the last like 20 25 30 years you'd be reading about the same kind of issues mm -hmm. um but there's a lot more going on yeah uh, with india it is a little different because you do have a lot a lot of media outlets in india that provide various points of view uh so you do have very easy access to you know every part of the spectrum uh that you want to read about india but not so much uh, about colombia if you do not look at the uh, spanish language media right so, but if you do read the spanish language media in colombia in other latin american countries or portuguese in brazil there is a huge amount of content and really original really good perspectives from the ground uh, that tell you the full story you know so even for me to understand what's going on in colombia now uh, more than reading i had to listen to podcasts from a couple of experts who spoke very candidly about the situation there and it, it it's 
sort of similar in India, uh, but you do have to look at both sides uh, because India has also become quite polarized recently. So there's a lot in between that you may not get if you only read one side or the other. Yeah. I think the uh, the lack of in between space is something I struggle with in the American media in particular. There's there's a yeah. big unexplored, uh, if I may say it that way, uh, terrain correct, correct. there. I'm I'm also curious what um, India and Colombia know about each other at the level of quote unquote popular media. Um, to be frank, not so much, and not just India and Colombia, uh, India and Latin America. There isn't so much knowledge um, from one side to the other in India about Latin America and in Latin America about India. Although in Latin America, there is a lot more awareness uh, and knowledge of India. Yeah? But still a lot of that knowledge, even till recently, has been, uh, has been more historical issues, you know, like things like Rabindranath Tagore, who visited Argentina, um, I still hear from my Latin American friends about uh, Madre Teresa de Calcuta, like Mother Teresa of uh, Calcutta. Yeah. Um, but there isn't so much knowledge of the sort of uh, more contemporary India. Right. Um, so there is a big knowledge gap, definitely, from both sides. And within India also, there's very little, uh, let's say, I'm talking more from a broader perspective. There isn't uh, so much knowledge about, you know, how are Latin American societies uh, developing from an uh, economic perspective, which is very useful for India. To give one example, uh, Latin America is really um, uh, well known globally for conditional cash transfers. India started doing um, direct uh, cash transfers and conditional cash transfers, which are basically... Um, welfare schemes where a certain amount of funding is given to uh, people who live below the poverty line and India could have learned for instance quite a bit from the Latin American experience of this because um, countries like Mexico, Brazil, even Colombia, um, Peru have all done cash transfers, traditional cash transfers uh, for about 20-25 years now. Uh, but there's hardly any research in India on what we can learn uh, mm. from the region. Um, there is somewhat of, uh, say, more popular knowledge on Indian films, on uh, uh, coffee, football from Latin America, things like that, right. but not really profound uh, knowledge of the region. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and, I imagine that's true the world over, that often people's knowledge of other countries is at that kind of surf, surface level. Um, actually, in this case, I think the primary reason is because there is almost uh, uh, no Indian diaspora in Latin America, right? And also the other way around. Right. So in India, there is a much deeper understanding of Southeast Asia, of even Africa, of the U.S. Especially, even of the Middle East. There are, if I'm not wrong, maybe about eight to ten million um, uh, Indians or NRIs. Uh, non-resident Indians who live in the Middle East and who repatriate a lot of money back to India. Right. So there's a lot of news that uh, comes out in the Indian media as well about all of these places. But about Latin America, no, not really. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I have spent time in Colombia, as you know, and of course, many years in India. And 
I often felt I could understand aspects of life in Colombia because of my life in India. Yeah. But then sometimes I wasn't sure if I was just looking at it from a Western perspective or if there are some kind of real similarities or relatable ways that that culture happens. What What's your take? No, very much. There are a lot of similarities. Um, oh, I good. Yeah, totally, I feel that too. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. In fact, I, from my own personal experience, I was born in Chennai okay. in the south of India. I moved to uh, Bombay, uh, Mumbai about uh, when I was 10 years old. So most of my uh, school and college going uh, time was spent in uh, Bombay. And when I went to Peru to live when I was about 19, 20 years old, I was about 20 years old when I uh, first reached Peru. It was easier for me to um, deal with the culture shock of um, Mumbai to Lima than it was for me to deal with the sort of differences between South India, uh, Chennai and Mumbai. Um, because, you know, Mumbai is, uh, is more modern, is more cosmopolitan. And um, Lima was also quite similar to, to Mumbai in that sense. Mm -hmm. It was not so difficult for me to adapt culturally to Lima. And there are a couple of really big similarities, uh, like family. Family is of like utmost importance, even friends um, in India as it is in Latin America. So, you know, uh, that, that is something that struck me uh, immediately. And uh, people are also extremely hospitable in both places. Um, so in India, there's a saying, Atiti Devo Baba, which is that the guest is... Uh, uh, almost like God, you know. So, yeah, that is somewhat similar in Latin America as well. They are yeah. really friendly and hospitable to, to guests and they make sure you feel comfortable. Uh, it was very easy for me to learn Spanish because of that. Mm. Um, easier for me to learn, much easier for me to learn Spanish. It took me about six months to learn Spanish. Uh -huh. And I have been in Mumbai for... I think maybe, um, wow, almost 15, 16 years of my life. Uh -huh. And I don't speak Marathi at all, which is the language of this state. And even my Hindi uh, is nowhere close to as good as my Spanish. <laughs> and the large part of this is because um, my roommates in Peru were really helpful. Even now working with Colombians, you know, they are always helpful of, um, uh, or rather, they're always open to me assimilating to that culture and they welcome you to that so yeah. yeah yeah well my Spanish is nowhere near as good as my Hindi but then I've spent a lot more time uh, in India but it was <laughs> it was very easy to speak Spanish in in Colombia for sure um yeah I've yeah. heard of people who've been in the Netherlands for years and and have 10 words of Dutch which is yeah. partially because every quote-unquote <laughs> everyone speaks English but it's also about a willingness to slow down and help the other person that exactly um, you don't get in all cultures um what what do you love about latin america i think you just gave us a little glimpse of that but it can't just be that it's relatable there must be also hooks uh for you that that are beyond that um i would say the biggest hook is a sort of personal connection you know and uh, maybe this is something that uh, applies to any other part of your life um anything that you have a personal connection with is something that you're likely to stick with for a while. So even now I have 
um, <laughs> I have about five or six different groups of on WhatsApp, on Facebook, uh, with my friends in Latin America mm-hmm. to discuss everything from like friends to politics to music. Um, and we still do these, uh, uh, you know, like video calls. Uh-huh. And I still have a very personal connection with um, all of my friends in this region. So I think that is what has um, made me stick to it for so long. And I think will continue um, to happen at least in the near future. Sure. And I don't know. I think it's also got to do with how much of the culture I have related to. So I listen to a lot of um, uh, music from Latin America, uh, what you call rock and espanol. Oh yeah, um, Did you see that? I don't know. Do you get this? Um, uh, there's a Netflix documentary. Um, yes. On the rock yes, and that's right. It's That's right. so that good. Is, <laughs> yes, I've seen that. And, um, you know, I, I use Spotify to listen to music and about half of my uh, music is just um, music from Latin America. So, you know, that's still something that uh, uh, that I do. And even, even when I got married about uh, seven years ago now, uh, my wife, who's... Um, uh, Indian but uh, Catholic she's from her parents are from Goa and Kerala um, for our wedding we we danced to three different songs one of which was a Colombian uh, song by Carlos Vives oh, you know? so love him yeah, so, which song was it yeah so it was called Diosa Coronada mm-hmm. so yeah so I think Great this song. connection with the culture with the music dance a uh, lot of film as well uh, uh, yeah keeps you sort of interested and uh, that's where the sort of passion lies you know so yeah 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 I hear you I hear you now how do people in um Latin America respond to you as someone from the subcontinent is there a um is there is there kind of an 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 expectation that so in the in the western academy there's there's often Mm -hmm. this very colonial uh, thinking that I think is is not uh, always explicit that um, we as white uh-huh. people can study anywhere but people from other regions need to focus on their there's, there can be a really great element of surprise like oh yeah. you study Latin America have you <laughs> um, have you encountered that um, to to my uh, not really surprise but of course it's it's really uh, been a positive experience from this point of view it has been the opposite you know oh, how um, people welcome me more because i am from a developing country because they can relate to yeah. india uh, because i don't come from you know someone somewhere that uh, they already have some sort of historical um, uh, let's say uh, historical experience with like yeah. europe or even the us So it's usually quite a refreshing Mm -hmm. um, element that I come from India and not from, uh, not from, let's say the West, right? So even I taught two very short courses, one in Colombia and one in uh, Peru, Um, actually two in Peru and one in Colombia to uh, MBA students at business schools uh, in both these countries. And in both, in both these uh, cases, the students were also so open and happy to hear from someone who comes 
from a background where you know you have similar developmental issues mm-hmm. um, the sort of problems that indians or indian businesses would face um, would be very similar to what uh, people in colombia and peru would face as well awesome. so yeah so they've been quite welcoming and uh, though i think the language does help so in both of these instances i did not teach in english right. i taught in spanish yeah um, also now when i work uh, in pro colombia practically 90% of my work is in spanish um, just when i talk to uh, uh, importers in india uh, and in the middle east it ends up being in english but uh, otherwise most of my work is in spanish so i think that does make a difference as well yeah it's so um it's so good to hear that your experience and the experience of the people you work with in latin america this um like you say almost a lack of 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 historical connection is what makes exactly. the future more possible it's it's so good to hear that and i'm so pleased that you brought that into the conversation um i want to end by asking you about stanford um so w- what brought you to stanford and what are some of your favorite memories now um so i applied for uh, these masters in latin american studies programs across the us in 20 end of 2013 the beginning of 2014 mm-hmm. and uh, what drew me to stanford particularly was the fact that the center for latin american studies bolivar house has been around for really long yeah. um, more than 50 years mm-hmm. so you know there's a lot of um, experience that uh, i thought i could benefit from which i did when i got there right um, and in terms of experience i think uh, that was one of the best years of my life mm. uh, my wife and i got married two or three months uh, before that Uh, before we heard that uh, uh, i got into stanford and we decided to go there uh, like pretty much immediately and we had an absolutely wonderful time there um, i had not a single negative experience in my whole time at uh, stanford and in california for that one year amazing um, so it, <laughs> it was it was a really positive experience uh, the people were extremely nice um i learned a lot in fact if there's one thing that uh, i like to highlight from that experience it's the fact that i was ex- i was an extremely poor academic student in india all my life um i barely passed my uh, uh, bachelor's degree and uh, my schooling before that in fact i did so poorly in uh, up till the 8th grade that in the 9th and 10th grade i was made um i was forced to drop maths and science wow um and instead did uh, uh economics and environmental studies and Which even after that more fun <laughs> yeah that's true and and even after that um i studied i did my bachelor's in journalism uh, you know nothing to do with maths nothing to do with science um my family uh, has a lot of engineers i did not go down that road uh but i did extremely poorly in the indian education system uh because of you know the focus is more on uh, sort of rote learning so right. you just have to read exactly what's in the book and that's exactly what you have to write you don't have to think you don't have to mm-hmm. um analyze and put those things down on paper at least 
in the experience that I had, maybe in engineering, maybe in other um, subjects, that is what you have to do. Uh, but when I came to Stanford, I we had no exams in my whole course. I had one exam, um, and that too, you know, was not really um, like you have to study for this exam. It had a few questions that were more um, subjective, your thoughts on certain things. Um, so I, I really did well in that system because. The focus was on discussion, on learning, on writing a lot. Um, so, yeah, I had a really positive experience. Yeah. Uh, that is so good to hear. I have to say we at the Center for South Asia are always a little envious of the Center for Latin American Studies because they actually <laughs> have a whole house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. We have shared office space, but we love the people we share with. And obviously we haven't yeah. seen each other for over a year. So at this point, I'm quite missing even my teeny tiny little office on campus and, and campus itself. Um, Harry, thank you so much for making time for us. I know it's late for you. Uh, it has been really great to get to know you, introduce you to our audience. And I really hope that uh, before too long, you'll be able to, to come and visit us at Stanford and, uh, and you can come back. I'm sure Elizabeth would love to have you for a, a cafecito in Bolivar House. Yeah, no, I'd be very, very happy to, to come back. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to, to speak with you. And um, uh, I'm glad I got this opportunity to participate in the podcast. Thank you so much. I also want to thank, as always, Soham Shiva for creating the music for the intro and the outro of the podcast and Simbrat Mataru for doing the post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.